Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. Wahoo is dedicated to the journey of every athlete from a sprint to Ironman. Wahoo is with you every pedal stroke, every stride, and every trying moment with the commitment to make you better. As endurance athletes themselves, Wahoo provides an ecosystem of products, including Kicker Smart Trainers, Element Bike Computers, and Ticker Heart Rate Monitors to provide exactly what you need to reach the finish line and smash your training goals. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Haley, welcome back to another week. How are you? Alyssa, my voice is back. I'm doing so much better than I was last week health-wise. I was pretty happy last week still, but at least I'm a little bit easier to understand and my talking is a little less strained this week. So hopefully our listeners will appreciate healthy Haley back on the podcast. Perfect. And how has that like post-race recovery been going? Alyssa, it was kind of weird this year because Coeur was a week later than it has been in past years. So having the 4th of July immediately after the race was a little bit different. Um, you know, usually I, uh, in past years, I've like, you know, had a week and a half before the 4th of July. So then on the 4th, you kind of can take advantage of that day. A lot of people have the day off and you go for like some big ride. And this year I was so tired. My sister's actually in town and she had like gone for a hike and she like texts me cause she wants to go out to breakfast. And I was still in bed. I felt kind of lazy, but we did, she, she came over and waited for me to go for a run. And then we went to breakfast, but I was like, all of a sudden I have become the lazy sibling. No, I think that's allowed, especially the week after a race. You should definitely be, as Christy told us last week, we should be sleeping in and listening to our bodies and getting that sleep as the main part of your recovery. Right? Yes. I did take Christy's advice to heart. And I think it worked. I mean, it worked for my voice at least. So there, there's some truth in that for sure. How about you? What's going on in uh, Charlottesville? I am in the thick of, I forget if I've mentioned this yet on the podcast, but I had decided that there were a couple races I was kind of thinking about for July. And I actually, after talking to my coach Hillary, we 
took them off the table and I said, you know what? I have the time and the space to do like a big Ironman block. And for me, this is so strange. Like I haven't raced an Ironman in quite a long time because of the long trail project last year. Right. So it's been since April of 2018 that I raced Ironman. And even going into that race, I would say, you know, I didn't put, you know, I put in a big build, but not like some other things I've done in the past to get ready for Ironman. Right. Because we still wanted to be able to pivot off of that to get into the long trail training. So I kind of was like, I don't know what I was thinking when I mentioned this, you know, it's like one of those days when you're feeling good and you're like, I just feel like I can train for Ironman again, like full on, you know? So I'm like, Hillary, I think this would be a good idea to spend, you know, July and the first couple of weeks of August instead of, you know, racing a little bit more or something like that, maybe to put in a big like block of work like I have done before in the past. And that is my body responds very well to that. And mentally I respond very well to that when I'm about to go into some racing. So in August I have Ironman Copenhagen three weeks later, Ironman Wisconsin. And a week after that, I'm going to race the three day savage man challenge. So I have a big block of races in that span of time. And I just figured the best thing to do would be to do a big block of training for that. So I have started that and I have to admit, I, wouldn't have even known it was the 4th of July, except for the fireworks as I was like trying to fall asleep in bed that night. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess it is the 4th of July because as you know, with Ironman training, there's not really, you know, much time for celebrations really. I mean, you, you could make time, but I have obviously made the choice to prioritize training here for the next few weeks and to really try and try and do a good build. So above all else, like sleep and recovery and that kind of thing is number one. So I didn't even see fireworks, but I did listen to a lot of them. I know you have a soccer background. Were you able to watch any of the world cup? Because I, I, that was something I did while I was recovering and it was fantastic. Yay. Go USA. It was awesome, Haley. So it like the world's aligned too with very easily. I felt like I could have been out biking all day or something right to miss these games. And I had easy bike rides both days during the games that I was able to do on my trainer and watch the whole thing. And it was so fun to watch not only the, I guess, semifinals, semifinals game, right? Semifinals come before the finals. This is how tired I am, folks. Yes. Semifinals (laughs) against England. Quarterfinals, then semifinals. Quarterfinals with Spain, semifinals with England. Yes. Because that was the teacup, right? No. Quarterfinals was France. That was like the really big one last Friday. I missed that one when I was driving to Coeur d'Alene. And then semifinals was with England. England. Yes. The teacup. The The teacup controversy, teacup gate. And then the finals today. So we were recording a day earlier than we usually record. And so that was today. I was spinning and watching the United States beat. This is how tired I am, folks. (laughs) Netherlands. Norway kept coming into my head. And I was like, don't say it. Don't say it. Netherlands. You got to give them credit. They, uh, they did work in that world cup final and it was a it was a great game. I mean, their goalie was on fire the first half. It was, I I mean, I don't know that much about soccer, but it looked impressive to me. In my soccer days, I was a goalkeeper. Did you know that? Yeah. Oh, so goalkeeper. Goalkeeper is the actual Yes. I felt like one with the U.S. goalkeeper. Her name is also Alyssa. It's spelled the same way. And it was, it's been fun for me to support the team this year. I vividly remember 1999 with the team and that it was like a year I was going to the Navy soccer camp and I got to like hold what they came. Like a couple of the players came with their, that must've been an Olympic year too. Maybe I'm, this is 99 was not an Olympic year. No. 2000 was 2000. Did they was play an Olympic in year. the could I have seen a world cup medal? I think it was like an Olympic soccer medal. I don't know. But anyway, I met some of the women like back in the day and 
just seeing it from then to now, like 20 years later, and they're still just so inspiring at whatever level of life you're at. Right. So it's been full circle for sure to watch all of that. And I was just so, so excited brought to tears. I was loving social media today as I could watch like everyone's reactions. I do have to ask though, as a goalkeeper, how stressful is that? You know, if if there's a penalty kick, like how stressful is that? I mean, or did you just like rise the occasion? Do you think that's helped you now? Like handle race day stress and triathlon? Oh, it's the worst. I mean, I think people kind of know that as a keeper, you're like, there's only so much you can do in a penalty kick situations. The worst are really like, I, I remember playing in a lot of tournaments that recognized how unfair kind of penalty kicks were to the thing. So they would actually have like a one-on-one kind of it. So that's to give the keeper a little bit more leverage and advance, you know, and help to like really have some skill involved other than, you know, just like a straight kind of not, you know, a penalty kick is certainly not by chance, but it's less to it. And there's less of a chance that the goalie, right. That's why it's such a big deal when she stopped the one in the semifinals. Right. So it's very stressful, but I also think it's even more stressful for like my mom who used to have to watch. <laughs> so all the, you know, if Alyssa's parents were out there, um, watching, I, I think I know at least my mom was feeling for, for them because she remembered those days and that stress. But Haley, in addition to the world cup, there was also a lot of racing in triathlon this weekend that I was able to kind of keep myself busy. I know that challenge wrote was going on. There was Ironman Austria going on, but we had Ecuador, a, Ecuador, 70.3, oh, Ecuador, 70.3. Yep. So there were the winners across the board, I believe were Lucy Charles, Daniela reef and Sarah Piampiano. And we had a very, though, our new feisty team member in the, I'm going to get this right the Canadian elite national championship. So we have a new feisty team member. Her name is Ellen. You might see her on some of the feisty social from time to time. And she was second at the Canadian elite national championship. So this is a pretty big deal. This is great. I know we have a very fast new feisty team member. I think there was a sprint distance race. So that's at ITU continental cup draft legal type racing. So we've, we've interviewed a few people from that world. I think Taylor Spivey earlier this year, Americans, but this is, our Canadian, our Canadian um, representative, Ellen, from Live Feisty, crushing it on the draft legal circuit. Congratulations, Ellen. And also this week, Haley, I had a couple big run workouts. And in one of them, I wore my new, I call it the Be Like Haley tank top from Smashfest Queen. And so the Smashfest tank tops are like my summer staple. I mean, here on the East Coast, it's just so hot and humid. You want to be wearing only air when you're outside because anything else is just too much clothing. So I got my new HC. Is it called the HC tank top, I guess? I think so. I don't know what it's called, but yeah, it is the same. It's like a, it's a smash singlet, but it's the same print as my race kit. And I, 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 I love it. And I love all the pictures. Everyone just got them like last week. And I love all the pictures that have been on social media that I've seen like different women from SFQ wearing it from FS team SFQ. And my mom got one and my sister, and actually I told you my sister's here and my sister was wearing that today when I saw her. So thank you for wearing it too. I love that. But they, they are I awesome love it. tank tops. And I think the HC ones might've been a pre-order, but there are other Smash Fest tank tops that Smash Fest Queen tank tops that are, um, same material, same, like just absolutely amazing to wear. I want to wear them all the time. And with your code iron Woman, you can get $10 off of your Smash Fest Queen order. That is over a hundred dollars. So you could check out a tank top for yourself too. 
smashfestqueen.com is uh check it out i i rode outside today Alyssa, and my sister saw me she actually came and sagged for me thanks hannah and her first comment was like you are so bright and that is exactly the kind of comment i want so that thank you smashfest queen for making beautiful bright colored kits that make me extra visible on the road and yeah thanks for everyone who takes pictures too because i love seeing the pictures online Haley, have you checked out our patreon page lately I did. We we haven't we've joked about this. I, I love stats. I love I love I, you know I'm an addict to those kind of things. So I check, you know, our podcast stats. I take our check our Patreon stats quite frequently and and I'm really appreciative of, you know, seeing all of our backers, our supporters, our patrons, I guess, who have signed up at it's patreon.com slot forward slash live feisty is the page if anyone else wants to check it out. But you can see, you know, just our community and the people who are, I guess you don't see their actual names, but you can see who is um, supporting us and motivating us to keep making great content for all of our listeners. Yes. So thank you to everyone who has been kind enough to get involved there. And it really does help keep us going and keep us being able to provide great interviews that like the one that we will bring you this week. But first we are going to answer a mailbag question. And this one I like because it comes in from my friend, Jenny, who was at the training camp in Tucson with me that Hillary led this spring. And when she was in camp, I remember this, she was very much questioning the purpose of the ankle band in swimming that we were having the athletes swim with. And she says it seems very instrumental for many in triathlon swim training. You know, Hillary talked about it can help your body posture and increase your arm like turnover and cadence. But she really likes to understand more of what she's doing. And she's been trying to find some more research about it online, but she hasn't been able to. So she comes from a swimming background and uh, knows a few professional open water swimmers, but she never has seen them using an ankle band. So she's not sure. She's just like, is this a triathlon thing? you know, I see some pro triathletes using it. Why is it important for triathletes? She had a lot of questions basically about the ankle band swimming. This is very appropriate for this week's interview because we have a, we have sort of an open water themed episode, open water swimming themed episode, but for Jenny, I, I, it has been a little bit of time since I was in the swimming world. So I reached out to get a little help answering this question. And the first place I reached out was with to Russell Mark, who is the USA Swimming National Team High Performance Manager. Russell is a former rocket scientist, and he knows basically everything there is to know about swimming technique. So I asked Russell, I was like, you know, do, do any swimmers use a band? Do any open water swimmers use a band? And he actually wrote back and said, yes, swimming with a band is an actual thing that some swimmers do. He says most swimmers don't necessarily use it as a way of tempo, which is what I said I've used it for in triathlon training, and I think a lot of triathletes do, but he compared it to you know, strength work, power work. So instead of using a bucket or a parachute, which I've done both of those, swimming with a band is, is similar to that, except it's not quite as taxing. So a lot of distance swimmers, so that would be like pool distance swimmers or open water swimmers, will use a band so they can practice, you know, really holding good bodies or body position, holding the water, having good technique, getting the most power out of every single stroke. He named a couple teams such as the Texas men's team, the Cal men's team, the University of Wisconsin distance coach, um, who he 
is are very aware that they do use a band. And I will add that I've been swimming this summer with a rising sophomore swimmer from the University of New Mexico. And so she's been swimming with me a lot here in Bozeman. And when I, I ha- actually do some work with bands myself, and when I said, oh, we're going to do some 50s with a band – she pulled a band right out of her swim bag. So, and she says at the University of New Mexico, yes, they do use a band. So I do think, I think it's a newer thing. And as someone who has swum with a bucket, swimming with a bucket, it's like so hard. And I do see where swimming with a band can accomplish the same kind of strength work without necessarily taxing you as much as swimming with a bucket. And swimming with a bucket probably is also more risk of injury, overuse, that kind of thing. And a band, you know, you can, you can do a little bit more with that again, still working on strength, but less taxing. So long, long answer to yes. Yes. Jenny swimmers do use bands. I love it. And I have to say that when I first started swimming masters, I loved that my coach was quite old school, right? He really hadn't, he saw an ankle band one time. I was like, what is this? And however, he has since remembered that he does understand what a parachute is used for. And so I've been swimming with a parachute a lot at masters and I would take the band over the parachute any day. <laughs> I can say that for sure. Yes. Parachutes are hard. And I would add that another reason to use a band in triathlon training is to mix things up. I think we've talked about this a lot, you know, with breathing patterns, with a lot of things that you do in the pool, sometimes using a buoy or not using a buoy, you know, using paddles. I mean, a lot of people who are coming into the sport of swimming as, you know, they didn't grow up swimming, you kind of need to use some toys. I think using toys do make it more fun. And I think a band, yes, there's a functional reason for it in swimming, but also it can be mental as well, just to, to do something a little bit different and to think about your stroke in a different way and feel it in a different way, just to get you motivated to swim a few more yards or meters. And Haley kind of, as did you, did you, mention her name yet? I forget if we've talked about who we are interviewing today, who will give us plenty more insight into open water swimming. All right. I haven't mentioned her name. I did say it was open water swimming themed, but if anyone out there is having world cup withdrawal, don't despair because this weekend, the FINA world championships for swimming are kicking off in South Korea and they are going to be streaming live on FINA TV.live. So, uh, all of your uh, all of your sports viewing needs will be uh, covered. So, and then this, I believe, this Friday is it Friday? I have to double check that. The uh, open water, the 10k open water swimming is happening, and it's actually going to be used as a selection race for Team USA athletes hoping to make the U.S. Olympic team that is headed to Tokyo in 2020. One of the front runners on that U.S. open water contingent is this week's guest, and that is Ashley Twitchell. Ashley finished as a top American at the 10K U.S. Open Water Swimming Championships this past May. And if she wants to make the Olympic team that's headed to Tokyo, she'll have to finish among the top 10 in South Korea this weekend. So Ashley joins us today. Well, we pre-recorded this podcast, but she is we're showing it today to talk about her slightly unconventional path to Team USA and how she's feeling headed to South Korea. She also offers a few open water swimming tips that we can all use. And so stay tuned because we'll have more from Ashley right after the break. Hey, Alyssa, have you ever come out of a race with a really bad sunburn? I sure have. My very first Kona, I'll never forget. It was awful. 
Well, I think I have a product for you. Zelio Sun Barrier SPF 45 is a zinc-based and water-resistant sunscreen. It's long-lasting, oil-free, and won't sting your eyes. I've used it, and it works great. I'll have to try it because I have heard that Zelio's products are designed and tested by champion triathletes like Heather Jackson, Lindsay Corbin, Jesse Thomas, and Rachel McBride. Wait, did you forget someone? Oh, that's right. And our very own Haley Chura. Well, Zelio's products are made with high quality and long lasting ingredients to stand the test of the hottest days, sweatiest training sessions, and toughest elements. They give athletes like us confidence and peace of mind to perform at our best without worrying about our skin or hair products. The products you won't want to train or compete without are the Sun Barrier SPF 45, Betwixt Chamois Cream, Swim and Sport Shower Products, and the Body Lotion. You can use the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com to get 20% off. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited. This is my first podcast. So excited for it. Well, we are honored to be your first podcast. And I believe we're talking to you while you're at home in North Carolina. But I think you just got back from a like three or four week open water swim camp at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And when I think open water swimming camp in May or early June, I don't necessarily picture Colorado. So can you tell us about the purpose of this camp and what it was like? Yeah, so I was out in Colorado Springs for three weeks, and I had been, so since the beginning of December, I've actually been out there about 13 weeks, so I've spent a lot of time there in the past uh, six to seven months for the main purposes for altitude training. So that's why we go out to Colorado. And so a lot of people always ask me being primarily open water swimmer, um, you know, how I do all my training open water. And I actually do like 99% of my training in the pool. So when I was out there, I didn't do a single open water practice. Actually, I did everything in the pool. And there were four of us who are going to world championships for open water who are out there. And so we did a lot of our workouts together. A fifth joined us a little bit into the camp. And then there was uh, some other teams out there as well that we would sometimes join in with. So we do a lot of similar training to the pool swimmers. Um, so it's nice to join in with them every once in a while too. So Ashley, the training side of camp aside, we're definitely interested in some of the other aspects of like what camp life at the Olympic training center is like. So what's the like living situation? Like how's the food? Are there any sort of like fun leisure activities or are you pretty much just swimming, doing some other training, eating, sleeping, you know, that kind of thing? Yeah. So my first trip out to Colorado Springs to the training center was in 2011. So it was right after I had graduated from college and I had moved out to California. That's where I was training at the time. And I, so I had no idea what to expect either. My first introduction to the, to the living, I, I kind of felt like it was, it's kind of like college dorm living, I guess is what I would compare it to. So there are single bedrooms, there are two bedrooms, or there are two people in a bedroom and there are three people in a bedroom, just depending on kind of what you get. Um, but really similar to, yeah, college dorm, but it's really nice. My favorite part of the training center is that everything is so inclusive and it's all right there. So, you know, the dorms are a two minute walk to the dining hall, which is a two minute walk to the pool, which is a minute walk from the, from the gym and sports med is right there as well.
well. So you kind of have everything right at your fingertips. Um, there aren't really many distractions, which is really nice as well, especially when you're like we were training, um, you know, we're gearing up for world championships. So it's really nice to really just be able to focus on what you need to be able to focus on. The food is really good. Uh, they have, you know, a different buffet every day that has a ton of different options. And then they have a grill special for lunch and dinner every single day. They have a salad bar. So really everything you could ever ask for. Um, so that part of it is really nice. And again, as soon as you're done with a workout, whether it's in the pool or the gym, you can get your food right, right away. You don't have to, you know, cook or go wait in line, anything like that. So that's really nice too. You know, of course they're along, you know, with the being able to focus and not having much to do, there's also can be negatives to that. It can get a little boring at times, but I think the payoff is so worth it. Um, and you know, we're always with a team and a, and a fun group of people. So it makes a lot of fun and it definitely pays off. And you mentioned there being uh, four other, or I guess three other women from the U.S. Open Water Swimming National Team at the camp with you. I think that included London Olympic 10K silver medalist, Haley Anderson, previous national champ, Becca Mann, and University mm -hmm. of Southern California standout, Katie Campbell. So three weeks is a long time to spend with just three other athletes. I guess there was a fourth who joined you, but, and there, you mentioned a couple other teams that were there, but can you tell us a little bit about the culture among the open water swimmers on the U.S. national team, especially you know, the women. Yeah. I think one of the coolest things about doing open water is how close our team is and it's so close knit. So we're definitely, um, obviously a much smaller team than the pool team on trips. So going to world championships, there's nine of us, men and women. And so it's a, it's a small group and it's a close knit group. And obviously the team changes every year based on who qualifies, but, and you know, there are always people coming in and people who are retiring, but we're all really, really close, which makes it really fun. And, you know, at our nationals, you know, especially, you know, three weeks ago, it was basically the first step of our Olympic trials. And so we're of course competitors, but at the end of the day, we're also really good friends outside of the pool. And that makes training a lot of fun and it makes it competitive, which also makes us all better. We all had our own rooms at the training center, which was nice because you get your, you get a little bit of your alone time and then, you know, but besides when we're sleeping, we're really all together all the time anyway. And yeah, like I said, it's just a really fun group, a, a close knit group and competitive, but also, you know, really friendly. And, and we like training together and, and hanging out together too. And Ashley, when you guys aren't at camp, the four of you live and train in totally different locations around the U S you each have different coaches even. So how does that work? Like when you are at camp, do you guys all agree? Like do you have a national team coach who then kind of takes over for that period of time? Or do you guys have like your coaches emailing you workouts and you're just doing like different things? How does that even work? Yeah. So I think it's different for every camp. And I think every swimmer has their personal preferences too. Um, so for this particular camp, coach Rose came out for the first two weeks. So he's actually officially retired from coaching. He was the coach of the mission Viejo Natadors for a really, really long time, extremely successful there. And that's where I trained uh, when I graduated from college. So I moved out there for about three years and trained with him. And he's on the coaching staff for world championships this summer. So he's actually, he actually came out for the first two weeks and he wrote the workouts. And so all of us did those. So that was kind of the layout for this camp. And then once we go to world championships, um, there's a coaching staff of four, but obviously that means not every swimmer has their own personal coach. So depending on the swimmer, they'll either have their personal coach from home, send them workouts if that's what they're comfortable doing, or they'll just, you know, look at the, the coaches workouts who are there 
and kind of pick whatever is most similar to what they're used to or what they feel like they need that day. And they'll kind of just latch in with that group. So, um, it, it works well. There's never been any issues. And for me personally, I feel like any camp I've gone to where I don't have my own personal coach there, you know, I think there are benefits to that as well. You know, it can, it can be tough not doing exactly what you're used to doing, but I think it's also, it can be a huge positive to do something you're not used to doing to, to get a taste of another coach's workouts or, you know, kind of how they do things. For the last few days of our camp, our coaches had gone home. So we swam with ASU and Bob Bowman out there and we did a few of his workouts. And that's fun for me to just try something new and something different. And I'm 29. So to do something, I've been doing this sport a really long time. And so to do something a little bit different keeps it interesting and fun and exciting. And we want to talk a little bit about your path to the U.S. national swim team because it's a little bit unusual. And when we think about collegiate women's swimming, we usually think about programs like Stanford, Cal, and and maybe a few years ago, my alma mater, the University of Georgia. So despite all that, you swam at Duke, which is a school that's probably better known for its academics and basketball teams than women's swimming. So can you tell us a little bit about the decision to swim for the Blue Devils? Yeah, so I definitely wasn't a super highly recruited, you know, high school junior at that time. I know kids are getting recruited so young now, but so when I was, you know, I was getting recruited and I graduated in 20, 2007. So I was getting recruited the fall of 2006 and summer 2006 and wasn't anything super special. I grew up on a really small club team, did really low yardage. I probably, you know, 30,000 yards would have been a really big week for me. So swam Monday through Friday. I had never done a double before I went to college. So definitely different than I think your typical, you know, high school swimmer who's going to go on to swim college. So I went on three recruiting trips. I went to Colgate, which is a small school. Um, I'm from New York. So upstate New York, uh, pretty close to where I'm from, Villanova and Duke. And Duke is my last trip. And I just, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the campus, with the academics, the athletics, the coaches, the the team. I fell in love with everything. And um, I never had really pictured myself going that far away from home, but I just felt like I, I knew that was where I wanted to be. And even I remember I came home from my recruiting trip. It was my last, Duke was my last one. And my parents said, you know, what did you love about it? And I couldn't even really put it into words. I just, it just felt right to me. So that's where I went. And I had the best four years of my life. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I was, I was really successful there. My first, my freshman year, I dropped over a minute in my short course mile. Um, and I made NCAAs all four years. And so when I went to Duke, there were only two women's scholarships, which considering we were, we were doing pretty well because that's, I mean, it's really tough to compete against teams. Um, you know, we were in the ACC that are fully funded and so they're fully funded now and they're doing awesome. So that's really cool for me to see, you know, how far they've come and how well they're doing, you know, nationally ranked every single year. And for any of our listeners, I think fully funded is like 14 scholarships. Is that right for women? I, th- I think so. so that's a yeah. pretty big differential, it's a 14 big difference, versus yeah. two. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is great. Yeah. And I mean, so we would, I remember when, you know, when I was in school, we would have recruits come in and we'd have girls who really wanted to come. But when you're looking at a $75,000 per year price tag and you're getting, you know, money from somewhere else, that's a, that's really tough. So, um, it was, it was frustrating, I think. And I think it's really cool to, to see that they have money now and, and how well they're doing. And Ashley, as you said, you had some real successes at Duke. So you qualified for the NCAA championship your freshman year. You earned first team All-American honors with a fifth place finish in the 1650 yard freestyle in 2011 during your senior year of college. So at which point was it that you decided to move like outside the pool and give open water swimming a try? Yeah. So I, I've always loved swimming in the ocean. And so my 
family would always vacation in Florida for two weeks every spring. And since I was going to be, you know, out of the, the pool training, my dad and I would always go for ocean swims just to be in the water. And I mean, nothing longer than like a mile, but, and I always loved that. And then, uh, my family did the swim across America event, which there are a lot of them now, but we always did the one in Long Island Sound, which isn't a race, but it's a, you know, an event, a swim. And I think that was four miles. And I loved that. And so the summer after my junior year of college, uh, me and a teammate of mine at Duke decided to to do to enter a national. So we had the pool standard to qualify for nationals. And I was out in Long Beach, California in 2010. And it went terrible for me. The water was, I think, 61 degrees, which was freezing for me at the time. It still kind of is. And I had never swum, you know, that length of time without stopping or anything like that. And so I actually don't remember the second half of the race. Like it was, I think I was probably hypothermic. It was, it was really bad. And so I finished the race and my parents and my coaches were, I was supposed to do the 5k, which was supposed to be two days later. And my coaches and my parents were like, maybe open water is not for you. You don't have to do the 5k. But I knew that if I didn't do that 5k, I would probably never touch open water again. And so I did the 5k. It went a lot better, you know, half the distance I was in the water a much shorter time. And then the following year I got invited to the open water select camp. And the culmination of that camp was nationals. And at that nationals is when I qualified for my first international team. And so that kind of just started the ball rolling and, uh, still doing it, I guess, eight years later now. And when you say 61 degree water, this is non-wetsuit swimming, right? You never wear a wetsuit in open water swimming. Is that right? So now, so yeah, so then it was a uh, non-wetsuit. So FINA has, I think it was maybe two years ago, they changed the rules. So now we actually do have a wetsuit optional category, which I believe is from like 62 to 65. And then mandatory is 65 to, or sorry, Mandatory is 62 to 65, optional 65 to 68, and then above that you can't wear one. I've personally never done a, a wetsuit race, um, but they have had several now. They just had a World Cup in Portugal where that was wet, mandatory wetsuit, so everyone's wearing them, and we have to wear the, the full sleeve. So definitely a, a big change from you know wearing your typical pool tech suit. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's very interesting, and because in triathlon, I feel like we have quite a few races that are wetsuit, and our, our cutoff is more like... 72. So that, mm-hmm. um, and that's for pros. I think age groupers is like 76. So now I think in the future when people are complaining about cold water, we're going to send them to this episode and be like, actually <laughs> swim in 61 degree water, non-wetsuit. But, but I you, actually I, just had my athlete email me because I gave her an open water swim for this weekend. And she's like, the lake 62 degrees, is that too cold? Because like she has to swim and run. And so she doesn't want to put on and off a wetsuit. So I was like, I think you can do just like a short swim in 62. So now yeah. I'm, I'm excited. I can confirm that. Yeah. I mean, I don't. <laughs> like it. I'm the first to say I don't like it. And I really don't like practicing in it. I'm okay racing in it. Like I think just the adrenaline and everything, once you get going. So the Olympic qualifier in 2012 that I did was like 61, 62 and practicing in it was miserable. I just, I dreaded getting in it every day, but I think in the race, you just have so much adrenaline going. It's kind of the last thing you're thinking about. Uh, as soon as the race finished, it's like, wow, I'm really cold, but, um, so it yeah, sounds like there aren't any magic tricks or anything like that, that you can, you can tell us for the cold water. So, I mean, some people, some people seem to love it uh, and, and are really good at it. I think you can acclimate, but like even if when I take an ice, I don't even take ice baths. I try to take an ice bath and I like put my foot in and I'm like, nope, I can't do it. So, I mean, I think it's, 
being mentally tough. Um, but yeah, I, if there are tricks, I would love to know them too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ashley, you mentioned in 2011, the same year you graduated from college, you qualified for your first national team and then you actually went on or your first international meet. And, but you actually went on to win the gold medal at the world championships as part of U- team USA in the 5k open water team pursuit, which I was fascinated by this event because it's like a three person mixed gender race where typically, you know, it's two men and one woman and the two men lead and the woman swims behind. So you get to draft off. And I guess you're as good as the third person across the line. So mm-hmm. I guess the goal is really to get the woman across the line as fast as possible. I kind of love this idea, but you went from fifth at the NCAAs, which is a fantastic result, but you know, fish fifth in the college swimming ranks to a world champion gold medal in just a couple months is a pretty amazing step. Did that surprise you at all? Like how well you did, you know, in your first international meet? Yeah. I mean, I, so I think, you know, so the, the nationals that qualified me for world championships, like I said, it was just the, the culmination of our camp. And so that's really the reason I did it. And so I had, I didn't even know that it was a world championships qualifier. And actually that was also, it was similar to what this year was for us. So it was basically the first step for Olympic uh, trials qualifier. Um, and I was clueless, which part of me kind of wishes I had known. Cause I wonder if I could have gotten top two instead of I placed to their internationals. Um, but I also think it, it may have been a really good thing that I was so, so naive and oblivious. And I was just, I was swimming and I was having fun and there was, there was zero pressure. I felt zero pressure, zero expectations. I was, I was just doing it to, to really get more experience and, and to put in, you know, what I had learned from the camp into, into the race. And so I still remember I got out of the race and I just finished third and my teammate, my club teammate from back home, who I spent with in high school, who was also uh, swimming at nationals, came up to me and he's like, "You're going to China," and I had no idea what he was talking about. And so, you know, my coach told me, and and so everything was so new to me. And going to World Championships, it was about I think two months after nationals, and so that was like my third open water race ever. Really, I had done nationals the year before, and then this nationals, and then worlds. And so, it was you know, I think I I was naive and I think that was probably a good thing. The team pursuit was my first event, which was really nice to have my first event at a world championships be a a relay. I felt like it, you know, it was fun and it took the pressure off me a a little bit. And, you know, I remember think, I remember we were warming down after the race. And so each team starts a minute apart. So you don't know how you finish until all the teams have finished. And so we, you know, we were kind of in the middle of the pack. So there were teams still swimming when we finished and we knew Australia was going to be really close to our time. And we were warming down. And I remember one of the guys on team USA came over and he was like, we won the gold. And I was like, that's so cool. And like, it was really cool, but I was still like, I didn't realize how cool that was. I don't think. And, you know, now it's like, I realize like how hard it is to do that and how much work goes into it and preparation and all that kind of stuff. So I've come a long way, but yeah, that was a a really exciting and a a really cool first experience at a world championships and international race. So after that, in 2012, you narrowly missed making the U S Olympic team in the open water 10 K, which is the only open water swim event for women and men at the Olympics. Then in 2014, you had shoulder surgery and that was less than a year before attempting to qualify for the 2016 U S Olympic team, which you also just missed. We know you're here today in 2019, swimming better than ever, but how did you keep going through those setbacks, which probably felt, you know, pretty devastating at the time, especially coming off of a pretty banner year in 2011? 
Yeah. So like you said, I had a lot of success pretty early, obviously, you know, my first international competition. And so it was like, you know, just kind of riding that high. And then I, I won nationals in 2012 by quite a bit. And so Portugal, which was the Olympic qualifier, was kind of the first like disappointment I had had um, really that year, I guess. So since finishing college and it was definitely really, really tough. And, but it was 2012. So, you know, I think six or not even, I think four weeks after the open water Olympic trial qualifier, we had pool trials. And so I gave myself like two days and my parents were over in Portugal with me. And so I actually changed my flight and stayed an extra day in Portugal with them and just kind of gave myself a day or two to just you know, if I wanted to be sad, I could be sad. And I was with my family and we just kind of did whatever. I didn't get in the pool. I didn't train. And then once I got back to the States, it was ready to to shift my mindset and get ready for pool trials. And I think, you know, I, I definitely had to take time to, to digest it. And it was a really big disappointment. And I think it's, you know, especially now, eight years later, I have such a, a different perspective now that I'm able to look back on it. But, you know, and then, like you said, I, I had shoulder surgery in 2014 and then, um, you know, nine months later was basically our qualifier since it's a year prior. So then placed third at that when I needed to make top two. And so there have definitely been disappointments along the way, but I think shifting my perspective to how awesome it is to get to do what I do. And, and I never really saw myself being here. I, if you had told me eight years ago, I would still be swimming. I would have said no way. And so you know, I've, I've raced on six of the seven continents and I've made amazing friends, both teammates and competitors. And so I think, you know, having that perspective of how amazing this is and, and so cliche, but the journey of it and the friendships you make is really what I'll remember, you know, down the line. And after 2016, you did come back with a vengeance. You won your first individual world championship gold medal in the 5k in 2017. So can you tell us a little bit, bit about that moment in Budapest? Like after you'd missed the Rio Olympic team, what kind of emotions were you feeling when just one year later, your hand hit that timing mat first and you became the world champion? Yeah. So I think, you know, so it's, it's hard to put into words, but it's an, it's obviously an absolutely amazing feeling. And, but what's really interesting to me looking back on it now is that two weeks before that world championship, I was talking to, um, my coach from out in California who I, I still wasn't with full time at that time, but I talked to him all the time. And, um, I was telling him that I thought I was probably going to retire after the world championships. And, he was like, really, he didn't really say anything either way, but just said, really. And I said, yeah, I think so. You know, I was ready to, you know, move on and start a family. And, um, and then I won gold and it was like, wait a second, like, I'm not ready to be done with this. And I do still want to shoot for 2020, but ever since I graduated college, um, and decided to, to continue swimming, I really always taken it year by year. And so I think that's just kind of the way I have to go about it. And so it's never been like, you know, and I, I'm going to swim till 2020 or I'm going to swim till 2016. It was always, I'm going to swim, um, really until I'm, I'm done loving it. And I'm, you know, I'm still getting faster too in the pool. And so that's kind of always been my mindset of, I'm just going to take it not even year by year, but day by day and, and how I'm feeling. And of course there are bad days. People always ask me like, how are you motivated to swim every single day? And it's like, I'm not motivated every single day. Like I I go and of course I love it 90% of the time, but of course I also have days that I don't really want to be there and days that don't go well and darker times. Like when I was going through my, my shoulder surgery and I still do have flare ups with that. So that's tough, but yeah, just, you know, reminding myself why I do it. And I started it when I was really, really young because I love it and I, I, I still love it. And so, um, having that mindset has helped me a whole lot. 
And Ashley, you had a tweet that went a little bit viral, at least in like the circles we run in, right? In endurance sports earlier this year, when you listed out some of your best times in the 1650 yard pool swim during your career. And you said at age 17, you swam a time of 16 minutes and 50 seconds. At age 21, you swam 15 minutes and 54 seconds. And at age 29, in the middle of a huge training week, 15 minutes and 30 seconds. So we're taking, we're talking swimming a full minute and 20 seconds faster at close to 30 years old, when most swimmers are probably seeing their best times in their late teens and their early twenties. So why was it important for you to share those numbers with the world? Yeah. I mean, I actually hesitated a lot sending that tweet because I don't really like, you know, sharing numbers and that kind of stuff is, is personal. And, um, but I think, you know, if I can help one younger swimmer, you know, it's worth it. And, I think in today's age with the social media, there's so much comparison and, you know, I swim with, so currently I swim in the afternoons, at least with the club team. So in the mornings, I, there's a group of us professionals who swim, but in the afternoons, I'm with the club team and out in California, I was with the club team as well. So I'm with, um, that age of kids a lot and it's, it's changed a lot since I was in high school and social media is so, so prevalent. And of course there are positives to it, but I think it can also be really difficult. And, you know, I look especially at like the recruiting thing and I feel like there's a lot of pressure on kids to commit to schools you know, for the Instagram posts and, you know, so to see how many likes they get or, or what, whatnot. And going along with that, I think it's really easy to, you, you constantly have everyone else like at your fingertips. And so what is this person doing? And what is that person going? And I, well, they did this. I should, I should be doing that. Or they went this time. I should be going that time. And I think it can kind of lead you down a, a dangerous pathway. And so just, you know, right. Reminding people that there's so many different pathways to get to where you may want to go. And like, I was definitely a, a late bloomer in that sense. And I think a lot of it was because I didn't do a ton of yardage in, in high school. And I think that's part of a lot of the reason of why I'm still swimming today. But, um, yeah, just reminding kids that there's, there's so many different ways and you don't have to be doing exactly what someone else is doing. Um, and you know, I got a lot of positive feedback from, from that tweet. And so that meant a lot to me that, uh, you know, hopefully it meant, it meant something to a lot of younger swimmers. And as the tweet alludes, it's not just your open water swim times that have gotten faster through your 20s, but your pool times have dropped significantly as well. And so with pool races being max about, you know, 16 minutes long and open water swim races averaging closer to two hours, is it hard to balance the training for both disciplines? It can be at times, but I think in the long run, it's actually proven to be really beneficial for me to, to be training for both. And so... I think doing, you know, like I said, I do 99% of my training in the pool and it's rare now that an open water race doesn't come down to the last 100, 200, 300 meters. And it's almost always a sprint finish now. And so having that speed from the pool carry over to open water, I think is, is really beneficial. And then, you know, on the flip side of the coin, having that endurance from training for a little bit longer of races in open water, when I get behind the blocks for 1500, it's like, Oh, this is kind of short. Uh, you know, it's like uh, the last lap of a 10 K, uh, which is kind of crazy to think about, but yeah, I think it helps me to do both. And then, you know, training wise, but also competing, I think going back and forth between the two has really helped kept it kind of fresh for me. Like I said, I've been doing it a really long time. I started my first swim team. It was a summer league team, but when I was three, so 26 years, I've been, I wasn't really 
competing or racing them, but kind of. And so it's been a long time in the sport. And so I think anything to kind of keep it, you know, fresh and interesting and exciting is a huge plus. And since most of our listeners are triathletes and they're training for their races in open water, can you share any strategies for fast open water swimming or maybe drills that they could practice in the pool on their own? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest things and and most beneficial is sighting. And so it's kind of unfortunately carried over to the pool for me. So I have kind of a natural lift in my breath in the pool now too. Um, but being able to, to successfully integrate that sight into your breath and open water, I think is really important. So, um, and finding that, that balance between, you know, not sighting enough and sighting way too much so that, you know, you're, you're disrupting your stroke too much. But the last thing you want to do is be swimming, you know, a hundred yards, a hundred meters off course, which I think, you know, does happen a lot. It, ha- it happens to us too. And then I think the other really big thing is drafting. And I think early on at world, so early on in my open water career, I was able to get a sense of how important drafting is at that world championships in 2011, when we did the team pursuit, like you said, it was the two, the two males and me. And we, so we went in a straight line and I was third in line and just tapping their, their toes, every single stroke pretty much. And that was to this day, the easiest 5k I've ever done in my entire life. And so with like a, the coaches had told us with about a hundred to 200 meters to go, just sprint at that point. So you don't, we don't have to stay in line anymore. And I felt so good. I drew even with the boys and I mean, they were doing all the work. So, but that to me was like, okay, drafting is really important. And it's something I've still kind of, you know, struggled with in my career because I do prefer to lead a race. I like having open water in front of me and not being kind of caught up in the middle of it all. But I've gotten a lot better at allowing myself to fall back a little bit and draft because I know how much energy you can conserve and how much easier it is to swim when you're in someone's someone's wake. And then kind of tying in with that, like I said, I, I don't like being crushed in the middle of a big pack and having people all over me. But I, I've also learned that that is going to happen in open water. It's kind of the nature of the sport. And so learning to be okay with that. And open water is so much mental just as much as it is physical. And what I've learned is, you know, over the course of a race, whether it's a 5k or a 10k, um, I've done one 25k. So that too, your energy, your mental energy is just as, if not more important than your physical energy. So things that you're, you're wasting your, your mental energy on is going to take away from what physical energy you have left at the end of the race. So when I find myself being really frustrated in a race, trying to calm myself down and be okay with it, I think that's, that's been really important for me and something I'm definitely still working on. And just this past May, you finished as the top American and second woman at the U.S. 10K Open Water Nationals, which qualified you for the upcoming World Championships in Korea, which will be used to select the U.S. Olympic team for Tokyo 2020. So I understand the Nationals course in Florida was set up to mimic the course in Tokyo with warm, calm waters and a six-loop format. And like you said, is is common in open water swimming now. That race came down to a sprint finish. And I think there was only one mm-hmm. second between first and third place. So what is it like to, to sprint at the end of a two-hour race? 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely painful. I won't sugarcoat it. I think some races are way more painful than others. So again, I think it depends how you've swum the race. So I've had races where I have led for the majority of the race and that that finish is really painful because you've been doing a lot of the work. And then, so this past nationals, um, I was coming down from altitude. Again, I'd been up there for almost four weeks. And so um, I did feel like I had a, a lot to give at the end, which is a really good feeling. You definitely don't always feel like that. But I've kind of accepted now that it is going to be painful at the end and it probably is going to come down to a sprint finish. So I've had my, you know, my favorite races, I've gotten a quite a bit of a lead and it's not that, you know, pressure packed, really stressful. There's eight people in a line and it's going to come, you know, you're all going to be separated by a second type of finish, but I, especially at worlds this summer, it's very likely that it'll come down to a sprint finish. So accepting that and knowing that, you know, from my my pool speed, I do, I do have another gear to switch it into. And I don't kick very much at all, um, in pool races or open water races. But the nice thing about that is I do feel like at the end of a 10 K, my legs are pretty fresh. So I, I can use those a little bit for that sprint finish. Um, but yeah, that last like 200 meters usually feels like it takes 10 minutes. <laughs> And Ashley, we read about there being some like yellow and red flags given during the race at nationals, which we assume is like probably various penalties. So can mm -hmm. you explain what those are and how you can get a penalty in open water swimming? Yeah. So yellow flags are a warning. So you get, if you get a yellow flag, they'll typically they'll have a, the officials, boat will have a whiteboard and they'll, so you're marked with your number during the race and they'll write uh, the number of whoever got the yellow card on the board. And they'll hold it up with the color flag. So, and they'll blow the whistle. So you'll know that, you know, you got a yellow and at that point you need to be, so that could be anything like, um, purposefully in, impeding someone, um, being too physical, anything like that. And then the red is an automatic, um, you know, you're thrown out of the race. So, and two yellows would be a red. So if you were to get a, uh, red card without getting yellow card, it'd be something like, um, you know, if you obviously like skipped a buoy, you'd, you'd be disqualified. But, um, for the most part, it's just the, the physicality of it. So they'll give yellow cards just to kind of separate people. And especially internationally, the races do get really, really physical. And so like, a you know, you can't purposefully like shove someone's head underwater and there is going to be contact of course, but yeah, you do have to be also be careful and make sure you're not, you know, swimming over on top of someone and cause it can get dangerous. And so a lot of times, especially, you know, domestically yellow flags are just given as safety, like to separate and keep everything kind of moving as smoothly as it can for an open water race. And Ashley, we mentioned qualifying for Tokyo is based on your performance at the upcoming world championships where you'll have to finish in the top 10 women for the 10 K the race is happening in Korea on Sunday, July 14th. And I believe we can actually watch the live stream on FINA TV live starting at 9 PM Eastern time on Saturday, July 13th. So my calendar is marked. And since we will all be tuning in, can you give us some insight on how you think the race might play out? I know you already mentioned the sprint finish, but is there anything else that we should be watching for? So I know, you know, it'll be like I just kind of alluded to, it'll definitely be a physical race. Um, so I, uh, did the 10 K in 2017 at world championships. And obviously that wasn't an Olympic year, but it was still a very physical race. Probably one of the harder 10 Ks I've done. Part of that was due to the fact that I didn't, I missed my one feed that I, the one feed I tried to take, I didn't get anything down. So I basically swam a 10 K without any kind of 
feed. And so, um, but that was a pretty physical race. And I know the Olympic qualifier that I, that I participated in and competed in, in 2012 was really physical. So definitely expecting it to be physical, kind of preparing myself for that. You know, the nice thing about world championships is that we'll have, you know, two swimmers in every race. And so what I'm looking forward to in that race is, you know, hopefully swimming at least for some of it or part of it near Haley. Um, it's such a mood booster when you see another USA cap next to you. And it's really cool to know that you're representing your country together. And, um, ideally we'll both place in the top 10 and both qualify for the Olympics and both of our, our men will too. So that would be, um, it's no country has ever put filled all four spots for the Olympic team for open water. So that's definitely a team goal of ours to, to fill all those four spots. Can you talk a little bit about the feed situation? So is that something like, are you care? I'm picturing like, how would this logistically happen? Like, do you have gels stuffed in your suit somewhere? Like, so is, we do. Is there like a boat stop that you <laughs> like? We have a coffee boat in Kona when people are right there, but I'm assuming it's a little different. <laughs> yeah. So we do have. I you know I put goose in my suit. I've never actually taken one during a race, but just kind of as a a backup and you know a safety net if you need to. So I think almost every swimmer does have goose in their suit. Some have it in their ankles. Some put it um, kind of in the back. Some put it uh, in the armpit. Just for kind of personal preference. Wherever it won't chafe really. And then, um, it depends on the race, but either it's either like a feeding dock or there have you know, boats. And so each swimmer will have a feeder and they have a feeding stick or a feeding pole and it, the, there's a cup at the end of it. And so based on personal preference, you'll mix up your concoctions of whatever you like to have, um, the day before, and then you'll have all your feeds given to your feeder. So there's typically one, but sometimes two. So at world championships in 2017, they had two feeding stops. And so that was more tactical because some swimmers stopped at one feeding dock, some swimmers stopped at another. And so that could be tactical because if, you know, a lead pack is going and they all skip the feed and your feeds on that boat, then that can be tough if you're, if you're behind. So the feeding stations are typically like complete chaos. And at world championships, there's upwards of 60, 70 competitors in the race. So that's a lot of people trying to get at sticks and they're, you know, they're long. And so they're getting knocked in the head. So it's definitely chaotic. And that's another thing that I've kind of had to, to learn as I've, as I've, um, you know, grown in the sport and, and to be okay with the chaos that is the feeding station and not stress myself out about it. And, you know, if I'm going to stop and get a feed, making sure I get the entire feed in, um, cause I've not done that too many times and it definitely hurts you at the end of the race. So it's definitely chaotic. The smaller races are nice because everyone, and especially domestically, you know, we're not going to be nasty and, you know, knock someone else's cup out or something like that. So those ones are nicer, but yeah, internationally it can get pretty dicey. That is I love this. This is fascinating. I can't wait to watch. <laughs> and and we know, you know, you have this, the world championships coming up, I guess when this airs will be this month, but have you thought about the pool Olympic trials? Like, are you going to compete in the pool Olympic trials as well? Or are you waiting to see how open water goes? Yeah. I mean, at this point, I'm definitely planning on competing in the pool at Olympic trials. Um, so I'll actually do, I'll be doing the 10 K the five K at our world championships this summer in open water. And then I'll also be doing the 1500 in the pool at world championships. So I qualified for that last summer was their qualifications for the pool at pan packs. So I'll be doing both this summer. Um, again, like I said, I really enjoy doing both. And so ideally if I can qualify in open water this summer, um, definitely takes a lot of pressure off and, 
you know, my training won't really change that much regardless, whether I'm training for, you know, the pool or open water, it's pretty much the same. So yeah, ideally I will qualify this summer for open water and then be able to really just focus on training for the next year. But I, I would love to compete at Olympic trials in the pool and, um, probably just 800 and 1500, but I've been now to three Olympic trials in the pool and it's, it's like the coolest event. Um, they do an amazing job in Omaha. So definitely want to participate in that again. And Tokyo is the first time that women get to swim the 1500 meters in the Olympics. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So that would be, that would be really awesome if I was able to qualify for the open water 10 K and the 1500 in the pool. So fingers crossed, but yeah. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I think everyone's going to be so thankful to have this window into the open water swimming sport and uh, all the best as you are in North Carolina, safe travels over to Korea and we'll be watching. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Haley, do you know what our most popular Iron Women episode has been so far? I do, Alyssa, because you know I love the numbers and it goes back to fall of 2017 when we interviewed exercise physiologist Stacey Sims. You are right. And do you know what Stacey Sims has been up to these days? I've heard she's working with Noon Hydration to help formulate some products that have the female endurance athlete in mind. Noon Hydration products have clean quality ingredients and are also non-GMO project verified, which means top quality ingredients for your body and the planet. Noon Hydration offers a range of hydration products for all your workout and recovery needs. My personal favorite is Noon Sport Fruit Punch flavor. What's yours, Alyssa? I like the Noon Sport in the grape flavor and our listeners can go to noonlife.com and shop with a 30% off code of Iron Women to find out their favorite flavor. And don't forget to let us know. That's noonlife.com with the code Iron Women for 30% off. Okay, Haley, tell me one more time again, when are these races happening and how can I watch them? So Alyssa, you can watch all the action at finatv.live. Fina is spelled F-I-N-A. And... The fun starts this Saturday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, July 13th. That's when the women's 10K open water is happening. And again, top 10 is what Ashley needs to finish to uh, secure her slot for Tokyo 2020 Team USA. And then if people want to continue watching, the following week is the pool swimming world championships also happening in South Korea. And Ashley will, I believe she's, she is swimming the 1500 meter free, which that is the prelims are on July 22nd and the finals will be on July 23rd. That is not, that's not how the U S makes their Olympic team. We'll have our, our trials next summer, but it's still fun to watch fast swimming. Exactly. And I found it really interesting, Haley. I get this question a lot about, you know, how to get better at open water swimming and people are pretty sometimes determined to tell me that it's because they're not able to get to open water and they can't swim open water to practice. So I thought it was a interesting tidbit if people miss that maybe that Ashley does 99% of her swim training, you know, for the world championships of open water swimming in the pool. It's crazy, Alyssa. I know it is one of those things I've had people tell me my entire career, I need to do more open water swimming. And it's fascinating. I think it is. I don't think Ashley is an anomaly in that, in that respect that I think most open water swimmers probably train in the pool. It's a more controlled environment. You can, you know, cut your times a little better and feel that. And I'm sure that 
you know, when it's outdoors, it is more specific drill work. And, and I don't, I don't know if you're like this, but I get really tired swimming open water. Open water is hard. I mean, I think you have to like factor that in when you decide to go open water, but I do think there is a place for that. And I think if people are worried about open water swimming, it can be good to, to get in the open water, just to practice using your wetsuit and practice, you know, not necessarily being able to see the bottom. Yeah, I agree with all of that, but not, you know, if it's good enough for Ashley, certainly good enough for me. So I love the pool. I love the pool too. It is, you know, there's something about like being able to have the clock right there and hitting those hundreds and being like, yes, made it. All right, Haley. Well, thanks for chatting this week to our listeners. Please check out our sponsors and support them. They help keep us running. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash live feisty. Uh, leave us a review on the app that you are using to listen to us on. And of course, share with your friends if you can, because that is how we are going to continue growing with all of those things. And we appreciate your support each and every week. So thank you. Bye, Alyssa. Have a great weekend. Bye, Haley. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women Podcast is a live feisty media production. We want to thank our sponsors and partners, Noon Hydration, Wahoo Fitness, Zelios, Fen Coffee, FTC Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen.